starting this series, Shadow King. And you'd think with as many announcements as we crammed into five and a half minutes, we're working on it though, that we would have touched on them all. We have not. I do want to draw attention back to Daphne and to Randy. Really appreciate you guys being giant slayers, and we're going to get to that. But thank you so much for... Uh, you got that grit, determination, and faith. And that's what we want to all have around here. Obviously, we'll give some out uh, at the beginning of December for November. So looking forward to that. We did have an Operation Christmas Child packing party yesterday. It was so fun. What I wanted to draw your attention to is we, we had about a dozen people or more who showed up. And they managed to pack 137 boxes yesterday. So that's awesome. I hope you'll be like Leanne and I, and you grab one of the boxes that's out in the, the lobby that's empty, fill it up for a little boy or a little girl. Make sure you have it back here by uh, 1119, because we want to send as many of those on their way. It'll impact kids, families, and uh, communities uh, for Christ. I also need your help need your help on some research. You will be my research group, okay? If you have been in church for a little while or a long while, I would imagine somewhere along the way you have come across church words. So I'm trying to put together a series for early 24 that I think we will call church words so that we can unpack some of the most confusing things you have ever heard at church. But it has to be like one word or a short phrase, okay? It could be anything like grace, faith, mercy. Um, you can go all highfalutin if you want to. Sanctification, um, substitutory atonement, propitiation, uh, mercy seat, um, the law of Moses. Whatever you go, like I, I hear those words, and, and since I don't want to look bad with other people, like, okay, write that down. Here's what I would really like for you to do as a research project is, and it should be available to you on the screen, and that is uh, I have a text. It's semi-automated. I cannot uh, 
attend to every one of them, but it does collect your name and your number, and it will text you back. But if you would go to 855-446-3599, and you can start it off by texting that number, just say hello, and it will start the process. And then if you get to uh, a spot where it's like it's not doing anything else, then just type in the word confused. Okay? Confused. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't even understand what you just said. I'm so confused. But type in the word, the keyword confused, and it should respond to you that we're really glad you did that, or I'm really glad that you did that. And then I want you to share your word with me. Because like I said, give me a little time and I will respond back to you. I'm going to turn this to um, do not disturb because my phone is literally going off. <laughs> Y'all are blowing up my phone. <laughs> while I'm standing here. That is weird. It works. Okay, cool. That's, that's cool. Proof of concept. All right. Here's the other thing before we jump into the Shadow King. About a month ago, I challenged you because we were given an extraordinary gift of $20,000 to help us get the place buttoned up, buttoned down, get the roof a little better, help our kids' area be a little bit more shiny and new, but also to finish up the outside of this building. It's such an extraordinary time-sensitive thing that that $20,000, they said, will match up to $20,000 if the church family will rise to the occasion. All right. Well, it's been one month, and I just checked right before the service. Uh, so many of you have participated, but we have a donation collection right now of $12,500, which is remarkable. Way to go, church. As I told you, in order to start the work, our part of the gift needs to reach 15000 So if anyone, you can blow up my phone with that one too if you want to. If you got $2,500 sitting around and you don't have any earmark for it, do it right now. You can do it on the Church Center app and it has the finish strong, strong finish. You can do that. You say, but I don't have $2,500 so I'm not going to give. If you'd love to participate and you want to say, God, I want to honor you with this five bucks I got, then do that. Leanne and I have given, and, and I know I've noticed that some of you have given multiple times and that is really cool. But we have about uh, two more weeks, about 10 days to our stated goal of eleven fifteen to reach at least 15, but wouldn't it be great if we reached 20, and then in the end, we'd have $40,000 to work with to get everything done. So that's that. I hope that if you have the ability and you just say, that would be so much fun, then go ahead and do that. So the video that we saw to introduce this, The Shadow King, is about a fellow who's been argued about so many times. His name's King David. If you pay attention to any kind of ancient, uh, well, I mean, archaeology uh, type things, there has been so much debate as to whether David actually lived or not, which I find so interesting. Especially in the last two years, there have been so many discoveries that do actually prove that David existed and that, hey, guess what? What the Bible said happened actually happened. How cool is that? If you were paying attention to that video, you can get the sense that if... If all those things are true, and they are, this guy was not boring. He was not boring. He was a shepherd. He was a musician. He was a warrior. He had various troubles in his life. He had great successes. He was a mess. He got into so much trouble. So I'm just saying, if we think we're all a colossal collection of moral fallups, he was too. But God used him, and that's what I want you to see. 
Why are we calling him the shadow king? You got to stick around to see. Okay. He's very complex because if you go into the scriptures of the Old Testament, you can actually read an extensive amount about what David did from people who were standing by, who were observers of what was going on, and you read about it, and there's so much narrative about what choices he made and why he did that. But here's the other interesting thing, and this is unique to almost every other person in the Bible, is that we not only have narrative about him, but we actually have writings from him. Because being a poet, a songwriter, he actually wrote down a lot of the, the, the poetry, prose, song lyrics that he was trying to process what he was going through. It is a remarkable thing. It's unparalleled, actually, in all historical writings. There's just hardly any individual in any kind of historical writings that measure up to him. So you can learn a lot from him, from his experiences. But what we're going to do in this series and particularly in this service today, there's not a lot of fill in the blank because it's not that kind of a story. It's like you and me sitting down over a cup of coffee. It's as if he's sitting there talking to us and he wants us to understand some things, not only about him and what he went through and he can identify with what you're going through, but also he wants you to see, I want you to walk a mile in my shoes so that you can see my faith in God was not for nothing. I told you whenever I said, let's get into this, invite someone who's a type A. So if you're in the online campus and someone got you on here, stick with me through this. If somebody invited you today and you go, I am large and in charge, then this message is for you. This series is for you. If you feel like you've been beat up and everybody hates you, this series is for you because David definitely experienced it from people who were supposed to be very kind and helpful to him. So if you're young, ambitious, like I was when I was 12 years old, and I'm pretty sure I heard God say, God's going to use you, David. And yet in the meantime, I've felt times like, God, are you even with me? If you feel like you are killing it, but you still feel empty, if you have been crushed by all the difficult and disastrous things that come into all of our lives, if you are, as I am now, at an age whenever you realize that there are a lot of dreams that you have in your head and heart that can never come true, this story is for you. I'm just telling you, we need to understand the context of where this story is coming from because there is so much human uh, mess that we get ourselves into, that people heap onto us. It also makes sense when you understand David's story in the context that God was using him in order to clean up this human mess. And that David, though he was a stellar and remarkable king, he was actually a shadow of another king that the Bible actually says is the king of all the kings. So, anybody intrigued about David? Let me give you the time frame, and we're going to do a little history and talking about it. And more than likely, the guys are going to love this, and some of the girls will, but some of the girls are like, that's one of the grossest messages I've ever heard in my life. Okay. Don't mean to be sexist, I'm just saying it usually plays out this way. We are talking about a time frame that is approximately 1,000 years before Jesus showed up. Now remember, we're 2,000 years from when Jesus showed up. This was, two, this was a thousand years before that. So we're talking about 3,000 years ago in the Middle East in what is now known, and we know from the, the news going on right now, 
in the location of Israel. You obviously can visit. I would suggest you not visit right now. Not a good time. Okay. Interesting that the nation, not just the, the country, not just the location, but the nation of Israel is the only nation on earth who has gone out of existence and then come back into existence. Very interesting. They were a player in the, their geopolitical world of a thousand years before Christ. They had people to the north of them who would have been the Assyrians. They had people to the south of them that would have been the Egyptians. And then they had this small group of people that are from the area which we would call Gaza, the Gaza Strip along the Mediterranean. They were known as Philistines or Philistines, depending on from the west or the east. You know, tomato, tomato, it's all the same. The Philistines were sea people. That's the best that we have of their history, but they were incredibly fierce fighters. And they are known in the Bible as that, but they were known in all of the surrounding tribes and kingdoms, and they probably were the most feared because of their fierceness at this particular time in history. Now, understand that this is the Bronze Age. The weapons that they would have used were made of bronze. Do you know how hard it is to find a bronze sword in Cortez, Colorado in 2023? It's, as the guy says, it's might near impossible. So you go to the dollar store or to Walmart and you get a ninja sword and then you find, I'm just telling you, duct tape will do just about anything. That's a pretty good likeness of a bronze sword, isn't it? How would you know? You don't have any bronze swords. (laughs) But if you know anything about bronze, um, it's... It's malleable to a point, but then it also, you can't go much beyond a 24 to to 36 inch blade or it becomes unstable. So the reason I'm telling you that is because we need to understand ancient warfare. It gives us a context of what David was actually having to deal with. How many of you have ever seen Braveheart? Be brave and say, yeah, freedom. Okay. Uh, saw Gladiator. How many of you guys are like the internet? It's just all a buzz right now that guys actually think of the Roman Empire at least three times a week. Good. I've got some brothers in this place. Just telling you, if you study it and, and you see some things, it's great that we have the movies, but that glamorizes it a little bit. It, it, it hyper-realizes it. It's, it. It becomes fictionalized. They get pretty close on a lot of things. They sanitize it. And we in America and just anyone in the world, uh, we're so far removed from warfare of this kind. So far, so far removed. Because we, we operate wars now by remote control. And even if you fought, and I just want to say uh, uh, a very big thanks to our veterans because that's coming up this, this Saturday. Just thank you. If you've been where the bullets and the mortars fly, hats off to you. But even that is so far removed from ancient warfare. Whenever these groups of uh, armies like Israel or Egypt or Assyria or particularly the Philistines, um, they would typically have a sword if you could afford it. Not everybody did have this kind of sword, but those who were in charge typically did. They had a shield which would protect them. And if they had any money, extra money, they'd try to get some armor. 
But their, 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 their ability to fight had to do with shield walls. In other words, you and your brother were right there next to one another and you made uh, a wall out of your shields. That was pretty much the only way you could hope to survive that battle. When you did engage your enemy, you did not have a gun. Sometimes you had a spear, but very often all you had was a club or a sword. And if this is, and it's pretty close, this is about 24 inches, imagine that you are having to fight someone with a bronze sword that does not have a very, very sharp blade, and they are literally this close to you. You are close enough with your enemy that you can smell his breath. You are close enough to your enemy where you can literally see the fear in his eyes or the crazed look in his eye because he is so amped up on adrenaline, he is redlining. You can see the fear. You can smell the fear. A lot of soldiers would drug themselves with a little bit of a sedative in order to take some of that edge off. But imagine being this close to a guy who wants to kill you so bad. And he is so close that you see that he has a savage calm about him. It's brutal. And like I said, do not give in to the arrogance of the present of thinking, well, everything's always been like we have it. One of the reasons it was so savage at the end of a battle and they would decapitate their enemies is that was the only way to prove to the people that you went back home to that the enemy who was threatening you was no longer a threat. You were within arm's reach, typically, 24-inch long uh, sword, shield, and a club. If you were on the losing end of it, typically you did not die instantly. Because you were either stabbed or hacked to death with less than a sharp blade, or you were beaten within an inch of your life. And you would lay on the battlefield helpless because there was no Red Cross. There was no army medic. But you would be there slowly dying. There was not a lot of emphasis placed on going in and retrieving those who had been injured or dead. And so then the birds of prey would come and pick at your flesh. If you could stop the bleeding that had been inflicted on you, you would probably then die of infection. Not because they didn't know about bacteria. They just didn't understand what to do about it. If you want to know why so many in this era actually fought, most soldiers fought with, they were almost naked. They would have as little clothing as possible. As they had come to determine that if you were punctured by a sword and it took a part of your clothing in, you'd die. So to increase your longevity, then take away as many clothes as possible. And I will go back out and fight for what I believe in. That's how we pick up and understand to the best that we can what we're dealing with in 1 Samuel 17. Because this nation of Israel is now assembled against a group called the Philistines. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces of war and assembled at Sokah, in Judah, 
Saul, he's the king of Israel at this point, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped uh, in the Valley of Elah. Some of you have actually been there. It's fascinating. It's about 15 miles southwest of Jerusalem. But they camped in the Valley of Elah and they drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill on the side of the valley and the Israelites were on the other and the valley was between them. I am told, haven't visited, but the, the distance between where that comes down to a flat valley is it's approximately 1,500 feet across. Now imagine that Israel's on one side and all the Philistines are on the other. In verse 4, instead of having a shield uh, wall, what they did was a battle of champions, and they would often do this between opposing armies. So a champion named, say his name with me, yeah, let's all do it together. Goliath, who is from Gath, which is actually near the uh, crossover point from Israel into Gaza right now. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp, and his height was six cubits and a span. Most of us don't do that. We don't measure in those ways. Hey, can you cut that two by four to about uh, six cubits and a span? It's like, okay. Um, archaeologists have determined it's, if you put all of it together, because it usually had to do with the length of a man's arm and the length of his span of his hand, best calculation is Goliath was somewhere between seven feet, five inches tall, and nine feet tall, which is remarkable. I once sat next to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar over at the Dusty Rose in Mancus. Yikes! His knee, I came up to his knees. <laughs> How do you do? <laughs> it's crazy. I'm just saying, this was a tall guy. But it's not so much that he was so tall. He, was, he had to have been a massive individual. I'm leaving out some passages. He had the ability to have armor made for himself. And we know that his armor, all of his armor collectively weighed 125 pounds. Anybody in the weightlifting community, imagine carrying that around all the time and fighting successfully. But if that's not enough information, it said that he had a spear and the spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Take that for what it's worth. And the iron point on the end of that was 600 shekels. You go, doesn't mean a thing to me. The iron point on his spear was 15 pounds. And he was able to hurl this thing and use it to his advantage. He was massive. He was massive. Goliath stood, and apparently he had an attitude. He shouted across the valley to the ranks of Israel and said, Why do you come out here and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Yo mama. <laughs> and he would do this over and over again. It was a stalemate for weeks. Israel needs a champion, and logically it would be the guy who's supposed to be in charge for them. And his name was Saul. And Saul was head and shoulders taller than most men in Israel anyway, so he's pretty big, got his own armor, and yet he's back in his tent over on the side of the valley. I want to give you a principle that will last through this whole series, but just work with me here. They were hoping for something, and it wasn't coming true, so what are they to do? What they had hoped for, where their hope was, that's what they were depending on. And they were hoping for Saul and their hope was not coming through. So I'd really like for you to fill in the blank. We place our hope in 
what we depend on. Or if you want to say it a different way, we place our hope in who we depend on. Now let's just think about that for just a second. Simple statement, but it's the truth. We place the weight of our hope on the people that we feel like we are depending on. We place our hope, our weight, onto the situations or whatever that we are depending on. Do not skip over that because what I want you to do is ask yourself the question is, who am I depending on? Whether you're young, whether you are making it and killing it, whether you feel like you're done, I don't care. Just ask, who or what do I depend on? Because that will examine your heart, and if you allow it, God will do something with that examination. Now, let's just deal with that for just a second, and then we'll go back to the ranch. It's, it's our disappointment in things. Anybody ever feel any disappointment? Come on, show of hands. Have you ever been disappointed in your parents? My mom's right here. It's like, time for confession. Have you ever been disappointed in your children? Got a hand up. Okay. (laughs) Listen to me and follow my line of thinking here. The measure of our hope often is because it's the measure of our disdain. In other words, the couple across the street, you don't put a lot of hope in them. So therefore, when they don't do well, you don't feel a lot of, oh... So disappointed. But your parents, you depend on them for a lot of stuff because your hope is in them. And whenever they don't come through on some things, that's whenever you go, you drive me crazy. We should do a series on that. (laughs) King Saul conspicuously not showing up at the front like he needed to. And every single day that Goliath would come out and go through that whole routine... And Saul did not step up with a response. The credibility that he had in order to lead the people that God had given him, the nation of Israel, his credibility slipped. And when it has to do with people who are literally going to take their lives in their hands to go and fight for your cause, that is not the way to handle that. But at the same time, let's don't pile on Saul. Because this is a tough gig. How are you going to handle this? Because the fact of life, and I'm looking at everyone who's younger than me, everything in life will go wrong at some point. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? You cannot get out of this life without anything going wrong. You can't. At some point, life is going to go sideways. And it may go sideways many, many times. Amen. Mm-hmm. Nobody is as good as we ever want them to be. Nobody is as good as we hope that they will be. Which church, I'm just telling you from my heart in this message, that is why I remind us we are a colossal collection of moral fellows. Every single one of us. The only hope we have is in Jesus. But if you feel like your hope has been cut off at the knees and it creates a deep disappointment in you with people or situations or even with God and it makes you angry, you're not abnormal. It happens. Ask any coach over Saturdays, any college football coach. You can go from a hero to a zero in less than three hours. (laughs) Heck, you could coach the Raiders and lose your job mid-season. To which some of you are like, about time. I'm just saying, here is a stalemate that illustrates why God never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. 
Because he had said straight up, you don't need a king. I don't want you to have your hope in a king. I want you to have your hope in me. That's why God established exclusively for Israel. He, he, he established Israel as a theocracy. Yes, a nation of law. Administered by judges. Unique in all the world, even to this day. But they were a thousand, they were literally thousands of years ahead of their time. But peer pressure will take down teenagers and it will take down nations. They said, we want what everybody else has got. Egypt's got a king. Assyria's got a king. We want a king. Everybody's got a king. We want a king. We want to hang out with all the cool kids. So they complained to the authority figure, and his name was Samuel, which was, we can't get into all that, but a lot of this mess was partly his fault because of family issues. Let me just take you through it right quick. First Samuel, this is chapter 8. I'm reading from verse 1. It's not in your notes. When Samuel grew old... And his responsibility as the high priest of Israel, he appointed his sons to be Israel's judge or priest, but his sons didn't follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and they accepted bribes and they perverted the justice of Israel. This is in your notes. Verse 4, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. I love the bluntness of all that. He said, they said to him, you know, Samuel, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Everybody else has one, we want one too. But God, like I said, had established Israel for a purpose that was beyond Israel. And that's what they kept forgetting. God established Israel for a purpose beyond Israel. And I would say to you, God created you for a purpose beyond you. Back to Israel, God established Israel not to have a king, but to produce a king. To produce the king. And I'm not talking about Elvis. Okay. Verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. He, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. Because it's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me, God, as their king. So listen to them now. But also warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Be careful what you wish for. That is the choice, Israel's choice, that set the stage for King David. We aren't there yet. But we have this huge treasure of narrative and commentary about him and from him. But you need to remember this about David. Listen to me. David was always reluctant. He was consistently confident. And he was also consistently humble. Happened in every era of his life. He didn't get it right every single day. My point is, he didn't ask for what we're about to see. He didn't back down from it when it was handed to him. And he didn't take credit for it when it was done. See, David's unlike most kings of any time. Most any time you see kings in history, what the king says is law. That's why it's good to be the king. And yet David, because all he had was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he would study God's law and he would say, God, I love your law. That's weird for a king to say. Because he always said that God's law superseded him even though he was the king. That is very, very significant. He loved the law instead of despising it even when the law literally condemned him. He would say, I still love your law because it's true and it's good. 
And he believed that God was the God of the one who gave the law. And that's that kind of conviction that gave him extraordinary clarity. And the clarity is this. Some of you are drifting off. Look up here. David was never confused about the identity of who was Israel's true king. Are you confused about who is the king of your life? Because some of you live as though you are the king or the queen of your life. He was never confused about his, his limited role, even though he was very popular. Very few people in life ever get as popular as David. He was never confused even though he had extraordinary military success and he had even had so much power. The reason I tell you that is that if you are in the middle of your life and you're experiencing some success, listen to me because I'm further along down this road than you are. Success is always much, much more difficult to manage than failure. You'll see it again and again in David's life. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. You want to hear the rest of the story? Okay, okay. Goliath is back out doing his thing again. We're back at the Elah Valley, okay? Goliath is saying, choose a man. Can you hear his voice? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, then we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine came out and he'd say, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Bring it on. Verse 11. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul, King Saul, the commander-in-chief, and all the Israelite army is inspired, encouraged, they're dismayed and terrified. Why would that? Well, because like, okay, which one of us is going to go? You want to go? You know, however, it's like, you're going to be the one? Because you're not as big as him, and I'm pretty sure we're going to lose, and that means we... What happened next is amazing, because David is approximately 15 years old. His father wouldn't even send him into the army, but his father, back home, cares about David's brothers who are in the army there at the Valley of Elah, and he says, here, I'm sending some uh, care packages, and you need to take them down there to the valley and, and so they can get fed, because it, it, you know, things weren't nearly as organized for the army as, as we have now. David shows up at 15, reading God's word, Genesis 6, okay, the law of Moses. He brings this care package to his brother soldiers, and he hears all that stuff coming from Goliath, all the taunts. And instead of being dismayed and, and, and terrified like everybody else, you know what his response is? I am offended. He looks at this guy who's seven to nine feet tall and he says, who does he think he is? To which all of us, because that's just the way we look at 15-year-olds, are like, you just need to go back there because you don't know what you're talking about. 
And yet this was the same mindset that David had from his... It was always there. You can read his, his story. He was always that same kind of attitude. In 1 Samuel verse, uh, you know, chapter 17, verse 26, David asked the men, asked the other soldiers standing near him, two things. If we're able to take this guy down, what are the benefits to that? There's nothing wrong with what the bottom line is. He says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? But he also goes on to say what his main motive in this is, what will happen to the man who actually removes the disgrace from Israel? This isn't about me. Guys, we got to stand up. This is about God. He keeps, uh, you know, just cussing out our God. And then, well, this next statement sounds awfully personal to me, but it's just important to understand the, the context in which it is said. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What that had to do with is that circumcision was the sign that you were a part of what God was doing in the world. He was saying, this guy doesn't even know God. He's living outside of God's covenant. But who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? I don't care how tall you are. You have crossed the line. And David's basically saying to everybody around him, why hasn't somebody done something about this? So word gets to King Saul back in his tent, who sends for David to come to his tent. You can read all about the exchange on there. But Saul sees David, 15-year-old, not that big. Doubts the odds of what he's going to be able to do. But he's like, you know, I want to help. You know, I've got some armor, Saul says. Why don't you try it on? Okay, you're 15 years old and you're probably about my size. And Saul's head and shoulders taller than me. This is not going to work. And David says, thanks. No. Because David didn't show up in order to prove anything. That's not why he came. He was reluctant. He did not come in. Put me in. Put me in. Put me in. He was reluctant, but he has so much clarity about how strong God is because he's been studying what God has said and what he's done, and he's like, I'm going to believe that he's that. I am reluctant to put myself out there in front and to be in the spotlight, but if the spotlight's going to shine on me, I am going to stand here, and I'm going to stand here with confidence. Not confidence in myself, but confidence in God. Because everybody I see in God's Word says, if God is who he says he is, then we should Trust him to be that. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 36 and 37, David says, Your servant, he's talking about himself, I've killed both the lion and the bear because I have been a shepherd to my, my family's flock. He says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because I am 10 feet tall and I'm bulletproof. No. He's 15 years old. He's not even dry behind the ears. He said, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he, Goliath, has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Even at 15 years old, he believed. I will believe that you are strong enough in my weakness. God be lifted up and I will sing. That he believed that any man and any woman whose hope was in the Lord, they didn't have to fear because if you depend on him, you can know that your hope is going to be strong. If you place your, the, the weight of your hope on him, you will not be disappointed. 
This rattled around in his heart and soul so much, he even wrote a song. It's Psalm 25. This is verses 1, 3, and 5 from Psalm 25. You, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I don't put my trust in my position or my power. I trust you. And that is my posture. I want you to have that kind of, uh, the, the, I want you to have that place in, 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 in our nation. I'm just saying, at 15 years old, he still got this. And as a king, he rarely lost sight of it. He, 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 he just went on to say, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And this is the unusual part that he said, so unusual for a king, because like I said, it's good to be the king. He, instead, he, as a king, when he's writing this, says, Guide me, because in your truth would you please teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. So yes, he's reluctant. Like, I didn't come in here asking to be put in the spotlight. Mm -mm. But if you shine that spotlight on me, I'm going to stand in the confidence of God because I'm reluctant, but I will be confident. But he's also humble. And, not, you know, I've told you this before. He didn't think less of himself. It's not a put-down. To be humble is not to uh, put-down. He didn't think less of himself. He, thinks, he thought of himself less because it wasn't about him. And that day, across that 1,500-foot, you know, 1,200-foot expanse of the valley, because Goliath is down there doing his thing. 15-year-old kid, not with the slingshot like we have, but the kind that you've probably seen. Long cords of leather with a pouch, and one, put one stone in it, and you have to be good at it to where you let go of one of them, I'm just telling you, how long would you have to practice with that kind of thing to be able to kill a lion and a bear? Hmm. Sorry, I'm just drifting into, I love this. I hope you all love this too. Because I'm about, to, I just need you to use your mind's eye. I'm going to read to you. It's not in any of your printed materials, not on the screen. When David strolled down into that battle zone, knowing what he was up against, it says in verse 40 that he picked up five smooth stones from a stream. And, they put it, and he put them into his shepherd's bag. You ever wondered why he picked up five when we know from this story he only used one? Guess how many brothers that Goliath had. Things that make you go, hmm. Anyway, picked up five smooth stones from a stream put them into his shepherd's bag, and then armed only with his shepherd's staff and that sling, he started across the valley of Elah to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David. I love this. As if Goliath needed any help. But Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. And he said, Am I a dog that you would send out a boy coming at me with a stick? He keeps talking, and he cursed David in the names of his gods, like Dagon and some others. And Goliath says, come over here, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. This is going to be easy. And David replied to the Philistine when he would, when finally Goliath would shut up. David replied to the Philistine, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, 
the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. And today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head. And I will give your dead bodies, I will give the dead bodies of all your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And then I think David probably turned around with a good sweep of his arm and he said, and everybody assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But he doesn't do it with a sword or spear because this is the Lord's battle and he's about to give you to us. And as Goliath moved closer to attack, David ran quickly out to meet him. He reached into his shepherd's bag, he took out a stone, he hurled it with his sling, and he hit the Philistine in the forehead. And he threw it with such force that the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down to the ground. This is in your notes. So David triumphed over that Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. And he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. And then I love this. Sorry, I know it's gruesome, but it goes on to say that David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword, which I'm sure was pretty stout, pulled out Goliath's sword from its sheath, and David used it to kill him and cut off his head. You say, that's so gruesome. Do not have the arrogance of the present. God was cleaning up a mess. And it was messy along the way. But I will say this. David, at the age of 15, became the most famous person in all of Israel. Instantly. Ain't no boy band who's ever had the kind of following David had. You need to understand that sword, not this one. In fact, if any of you guys got swords laying around, I want to see them because I might use it for my next uh, object lesson. Maybe we'll compare it to Goliath's sword. David, young David, did what seasoned Saul should have done. But he did that because he saw things that Saul somehow could not see. And that is the benefit of trusting, not in yourself, but trusting the God of the universe. Fill this in. Those who hope in the Lord, those whose hope is in the Lord, they see clearly, they act confidently, and they walk humbly. It's a pattern that was in David's life. Yeah, it's a, it's a pattern in the one whom we call king of kings. If your hope is in the Lord, you see clearly, you act confidently, you walk humbly. I'll say it again. We place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in who we depend on. So i got to ask you again, where is your hope? Is it in a, a world order of some sort? Is it in politics? Is it in your money? Is it in your smarts? Is it in your church record? Tell me who you depend on and I will tell you where your hope is. I was talking, I've talked about this many, many times with friends, but I was talking with a friend, and guys, I think you probably will relate to this about, you have so many challenges to your business to try and keep food on the table, 
to uh, guard your family. All those things that men are called to do. And you want to do the best you can. And yet you go, well, I mean, there, this is a, a guidebook for life. But there's no handbook that they hand to you. It's like, here, here's your handbook to be a man and a husband and a father and a good worker. And so you know you're supposed to go and do this because it's built into you. But when everything is up against the wall and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And you realize that you've been depending on you and you alone. And we've all experienced this, I think. All the guys in the room, for sure. Girls, probably the same thing. If it's all depending on you, let's be honest. You go, I rarely see clearly. I'm usually making it up as I go. I pretend like I'm confident when I'm literally shaking in my boots because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And you're afraid, but you can't afford to tell anybody that you're afraid. And you sure aren't humble because people who are afraid start bowing up. I'm just telling you, pride is, is, is a guard. It's, it's, it's to try and convince you that everything in here is going good. Because like, if you're good at what you do, you don't have to brag about it. What I find interesting is things like at RSM breakfast or other times when guys get together and they actually get a little bit honest with one another, you come to find out that the guy who's sitting there next to you is also trying to hold it all together with duct tape and bailing wire. And you're like, I thought I was the only one. Like, no, 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 no. He was acting like he's got it all together. You're acting like he's, you got it all together. And you're, all, you're both hoping that no one sees that you don't. Only to come to find out that most of us knew you weren't able to hold it all together anyway, and we loved you. My friend and I, I recall talking about this. What I find so funny, what he and I found so funny, is that you laugh at that because when you finally break out of that idea that you don't have it, that it's not all on you, and you actually start leaning on Jesus to give you strength, to give you wisdom, to give you courage, to give you what you need in order to do what he's called you to do. When you start leaning on to Jesus, you wonder and you say, how stupid could I have been? And your good brother says, pretty stupid. You could be pretty stupid just like me. How stupid was I to think I was fooling anyone, including God? But what I've, what I've come to understand and, and, and discovered about wise people, and I've said this to you in weeks past, is that no matter how powerful or talented you are, you cannot control outcomes. You can make a plan, but you cannot control the outcome. Just admit it, you don't have much control because there's too many variables, and you aren't God. That's why the wisest people will say, I ain't got this, but God's got this. I ain't got this, but God's got this. I do not have this. But the God I trust has this. And every day, you continue to make the choice that I'm going to lean the weight of my life onto him, onto him. I don't always understand what that means. But I am going to lean my weight onto him. Because if it's true in the old song that says he's got the whole world in his hands, that also means that he's got all the variables of my life and all the stuff that I never expected and all the pain and he's got all those things and he's got me in his hands. My past is forgiven, I have a purpose for living and I have a home in heaven. You cannot defeat me. So the action step I'm challenging all of you to take 
is I've already given you this, but you're going to have to write it down on a different card or cut it out or do whatever you got to do to put it up on your bathroom mirror, on the dash of, 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 of your truck or car or whatever, and start every day. Just start every day over the next six weeks and may want to take it past that. Start every day over the next six weeks that you pray David's prayer. You say, this is not just David's prayer. This is my prayer. I'm choosing it. I'm committing to it. I am trusting God and I am acting as though I believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he'd do. Psalm 25, verse 1, verse 5. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Psalm 25, 1 and 5. Say it with me. Psalm 25, 1 and 5. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Psalm 25, 1 and 5. Do that again and again. Get it into your heart and you start living that way. And I'm, I'd love to hear some reports. I'd love to see. Do you see God doing something amazing in your life? Because I think you're going to be able to see more clearly all the things that you have to tackle. I believe that you are going to operate and walk in great confidence because it's not about you. It's about the God who gave you the ability to do what he called you to do. And I think you, you're going to start depending on yourself less. You're actually going to discover and experience hope. That's like, he's got my past, he's got my present, he's got my future. I can trust him. So, here's the big idea. And then we're going to get the worship team back up here to sing us out of here. Y'all gotten anything out of what I told you today? Hope so. Hope so. The big idea that I want you to understand from today, and it goes throughout this whole series, and that is, David turned out to be Israel's greatest king. Because he never confused himself with the king. And if you and I can get that right in our lives, it's going to change everything. But David was Israel's greatest king because he never confused himself with the king. I will tell you this, that just like you have a backstory, so does he. We're actually going to go back from here next Sunday, and we're going to pick up some of his early year story. And it is interesting in and of itself. I hope that you will either tune in or walk in. I don't want you to miss as we shine more light on the shadow king. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you so much. I thank you for being so incredibly patient with me in all of my mess and my confusion. I thank you also that you have been and continue to work in people's lives. But 3,000 years ago, you were working in this man by the name of David in ancient Israel, and you were doing something so amazing to set up what was about to happen at what we call Christmas. Thank you for being patient with him for sharing your wisdom with him? Would you share your wisdom with us? In fact, Lord, would you take these very feeble words of mine and would you help them by the power of your spirit to land in our head and in our hearts where you want them to land so that we can understand them, so that we can actually glean the wisdom from them. But Lord, we don't only want to know what we're supposed to do. We want strength and courage to actually do it because we want to be faith walking people that kind of scares us a little bit God but by the power of your Holy Spirit in us you're going to bring us some peace 
a peace that passes all of our ability to explain. Because you are a good God, and we know that because we look into the face of Jesus, who hung up for all of our hang-ups and then rose again (laughs) to be our forgiver and our leader. Yeah, thank you, God. Do a good work in us. Help us to give you all the credit, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's sing.